Hello, my name's Luan Yuen. And I'm Tom Condon. Today we'll be talking about psychiatric pharmacology. As with previous recordings, the following recording is not representative of material from the medical school or medical practitioners' advice and is just student-developed content, which we hope you will find useful. The purpose of this recording is not to cover everything in psychiatry or all of the drugs, however, to give you an overview of what to expect in third year and what's important to know. We'll go through some resources that we found helpful. We will look at the neuroreceptors and how the drugs act on these. We will look at the key drug classes and some examples of drugs within them. And then we'll look at syndromes from overdose. And then finally, we'll apply it so you know what you should know for third year. So the following resources are what we recommend. Psychiatry Crash Course, Psychiatry at a Glance, the AMH, NPS Medicine Wise and ETG Complete. The usual resources like BMJ Best Practice and Up to Date are also helpful. So I don't know about you, Lauren, but when I start reading a drug side effects, I get through maybe two or three and then my eyes start glazing over and it's very difficult, particularly when a lot of these drugs have similar side effects. I think it's important to classify the side effects and we can do this by the receptors they act on. So there are five key receptors that these act on. They are adrenergic, cholinergic, serotonergic, histaminergic and dopaminergic. Yes, I think if you remember each of those neuroreceptors and the side effects for each one, you should be able to make a decent list of side effects for each drug if you know where they act. This is less complicated than remembering individual side effect lists. For instance, anticholinergic side effects are dry mouth, constipation, urinary retention and blurred vision. These are all effects that are mediated through vagal tone. So when you have parasympathetic drive, you produce saliva, your gut works and you produce urine. The blurred vision is from the pupil constricting. So adrenergic side effects are a result of adrenergic receptor blockade and this includes postural hypertension, i.e. dizziness or syncope. Histamine is easy to remember because when that's blocked, such as when we take antihistamines, some of them will cause sedation. These also cause some weight gain. So for dopaminergic side effects, we like to think of it as too little or too much. Someone who has psychosis, such as someone with schizophrenia, will have too much. So we give them a medication such as an antipsychotic to reduce it. So if there is too little of dopamine, i.e. we've given too much antidopaminergic drugs, this will cause Parkinsonism, akathisia, dystonia, tardive dyskinesia, and metabolic side effects. This includes hyperprolactinemia, amenorrhea, galactorrhea, and sexual dysfunction. And it's predominantly the extrapyramidal side effects, such as the movement, things like tardive dyskinesia, is what we're concerned with. Too much dopamine, such as someone we give levodopa that has Parkinson's disease, it can give them hypotension, mania psychosis, confusion, and cause excessive libido. We've uploaded a nice diagram of a synaptic nerve terminal and where each of these drugs acts, and I'll find it useful to think about in that respect. So the drug classes to note include antidepressants, anxiolytics, mood stabilizers, stimulants, and antipsychotics. We will now go into depth for each class and give a few examples of each and the key side effects to remember. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or more commonly known as SSRIs, are one of the most important classes to know because they 
often use first line for anxiety and depression. Some examples of an SSRI are Velocetine, citalopram, paroxetine and sertraline. And thinking of the most severe side effects first, there is increased suicidal ideation present when prescribing these drugs. This often occurs within the first two weeks and occurs as the depression improves and patients become more motivated to act on their ideation. Other important side effects include sexual dysfunction, if ceased, withdrawal syndrome, GI bleeding and hyponatremia. They are also accompanied by less specific side effects such as headache, loss of appetite, nausea, indigestion and anxiety. These are more difficult to remember. A similar drug class, the selective noradrenaline reuptake inhibitors, include examples such as venlafaxine, duloxetine. These have similar side effect profiles. In a class of its own, metazapine, classified as a noradrenergic and specific serotonergic antidepressant, NASA, causes side effects including dry mouth, drowsiness and weight gain. Tricyclic antidepressants are less commonly used now than previously, although still very common, particularly having other uses such as chronic pain syndromes. Important examples include amitriptyline, dothiapine, imipramine. One of the reasons tricyclics aren't used as much anymore is their potential for overdose and they act on so many different receptors. As such, there is a wide list of side effects. There is anticholinergic effects for repetition. This includes dry mouth, constipation, blurred vision and urinary retention. And anti-adrenergic side effects such as postural hypertension. And more importantly, and while they're not used as often in depression as first-line agents, they can lead to cardiac arrhythmias and seizures. The seizures is due to increasing levels of neurotransmitters, which can lower the seizure threshold. So the last class of antidepressants we would like to discuss today are the MAOI, monoamine oxidase inhibitors. These include... So the irreversible one is phenylzine, and the reversible one is meclopamide. And these have the ability to become quite toxic, particularly when combined with tyramine-rich foods. Once again, these include anticholinergic and anti-adrenergic side effects. For repetition, the anticholinergic side effects are dry mouth, constipation, urinary retention and blurred vision. The anti-adrenergic side effects is mainly postural hypertension. The next class of drugs we will be talking about are benzodiazepines. And in psychiatry, they're mainly used as anxiolytic drugs, particularly for acute anxiety, such as a panic attack. They also have other indications, such as procedural sedation, treatment of alcohol withdrawal, and treatment of seizure. One of the key things that we should remember about benzodiazepines are that they are a drug of addiction and people can become tolerant of them. Well, it's more the case of people will become tolerant of them and we should take this into account when we prescribe these drugs. As such, someone who has generalised anxiety disorder would not be suitable to take it every day. Similarly, someone who is having trouble sleeping day in, day out probably should not take them and alternatives such as melatonin might be more appropriate. They work in a similar way like alcohol and the combined effect of benzodiazepine and alcohol can lead to sedation. One of the desirable or sometimes not desirable side effects is the anterograde amnesia 
This is one of the reasons it's used in procedures. People who have been using benzodiazepines for quite a long time are prone to having a withdrawal syndrome similar to alcohol withdrawal. Benzodiazepines act on GABA receptors having a non-competitive agonist effect. Remembering GABA receptors are the inhibitory neuroreceptors, hence their use in terminating seizure activity. We will now move on to mood stabilisers. So the key mood stabilisers that we need to know are lithium and sodium valproate. We should probably also keep in mind lamotrigine and carbamazepine. For people who have prescribed lithium, levels of 0.4 to 1 millimole are required. These should be measured 8 to 12 hours after the last dose and levels are typically recommended to be checked every week initially as in this drug has a narrow therapeutic index. Lithium is commonly prescribed for bipolar disorder. It is renally excreted and we should take into consideration other conditions which may affect renal function when prescribing this drug. Additionally, we should also check the GFR before prescribing this drug. Lithium is known to cause hypothyroidism and hyperthyroidism. Therefore, thyroid function tests need to be considered and tested before prescribing lithium, as well as regularly tested every six months thereafter. The lithium toxidrome typically occurs over concentrations of one millimolar, and these include side effects such as vomiting, diarrhea, tremor, slurred speech, ataxia, drowsiness, seizures, and coma. That might seem like a difficult list to remember, but lithium toxicity is often tested in one way or another. You may be more familiar with sodium valproate as an anticonvulsant. It is important to remember it is a teratogen, which means that it's not safe for use in pregnancy. Patients taking valproate should be using contraception to avoid unwanted pregnancies, as defects such as neural tube defects are common. Other side effects include nausea, weight gain, diarrhoea and gastric irritation. Similar to lithium, you can get sodium valproate levels to see what the appropriate dose is. Stimulants are less commonly tested. The one we should remember is methylphenidate. And we will know that methylphenidate is used in attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. The side effects are similar to methamphetamine use and causes Decreased appetite, weight loss, anxiety, agitation and insomnia. And now we will move on to antipsychotics. I don't know about you, Luan, but I think that antipsychotics are probably the second most, if not the first most important class to remember past SSRIs. The side effects of these drugs and their profiles are often tested. They've come up in OSCEs before and they're also a common part of short answer questions. There is probably 10 to 20 at least antipsychotic drugs and it is very difficult to remember each one. The key classification that we should all try and remember is classifying them into typical and atypical. What are some typical antipsychotics? Chlorpromazine, haloperidol, zuclopenthixol. It's a bit of a mouthful that last one. The atypicals include clozapine, risperidone, quetiapine, olanzapine and aripiprazole. All of these drugs act on all of the neuroreceptors we talked about, so they are 
Anti-dopaminergic. Anti-serotonergic. Anti-cholinergic. Anti-adrenergic. Anti-histaminergic. That's a lot of antis. So the typical antipsychotics, which are for repetition, chlorpromazine, haloperidol, and zuclopanthixol, they are more prone to... Anti-dopaminergic side effects, and these include Parkinsonism, akathisia, tardive dyskinesia, and dystonia. And the atypical antipsychotics for repetition again... These are clozapine, risperidone, quetiapine, olanzapine, and aripiprazole. They have more... Metabolic side effects. This includes weight gain, diabetes, and metabolic syndrome. We should probably consider clozapine as a drug all into itself, as it is, it is quite effective, but given as a last-line agent. The reason that we should be aware of this drug is mainly for agranulocytosis, which can lead to life-threatening infections. And for that reason, we will frequently do blood tests to check the white cell count. And also for the reason that these drugs can cause metabolic syndrome, we often monitor cholesterol levels, liver function tests, and also glucose levels. So most of these drugs are taken orally, but depot shots are also available, and this ensures compliance. However, the drawbacks of this is that if overdose occurs, it is more difficult to reverse. Remember, these drugs all have antidopaminergic, antiserotonergic, anticholinergic, antiandrenergic, and antihistaminergic effects. So that leads nicely on to the two syndromes we should remember from overdose of these medications. So the main ones are neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome. Both of these syndromes share some commonalities in that they create altered consciousness level and autonomic dysfunction. So this is hypothermia, sweating, tachycardia and an unstable blood pressure. The key difference between neuroleptic malignant syndrome and serotonin syndrome lies in their neuromuscular abnormalities. In neuroleptic malignant syndrome, there is reduced neuromuscular activity and severe rigidity. Whilst in serotonin syndrome, we have increased neuromuscular activities and hyperreflexia. So someone with neuroleptic malignant syndrome will have lead pipe type rigidity, whereas someone with serotonin syndrome is more likely to have ongoing myoclonus, tremor and hyperreflexia. Serotonin syndrome usually occurs after one or two doses of new serotonergic medication. So this would be medications such as sertraline. Neuroleptic malignant syndrome has an insidious onset. It usually occurs within 4 to 11 days after starting this medication. Both of these syndromes have the potential to create elevated creatinine kinase, white cell counts, hepatic transaminases and cause a metabolic acidosis. Similarly, the treatment for both these conditions, at least initially, is similar. You want to discontinue the offending drugs, which is a often forgotten first step in OSCE situations. And remembering these patients are often hypothermic, so we want to cool them down by putting a fan on them and putting cold packs in the axilla and groin. Because these patients are also prone to dehydration, it is important to give them IV fluids to help clear the medication. Because these patients are prone to dehydration, it is important to give them IV fluids to help clear the drug.
In neuroleptic malignant syndrome, the key antidotes would be to give bromocryptine to reverse dopamine blockade and dantrolene to reduce muscle spasm. For serotonin syndrome, sometimes they use a medication called ciproheptadine. We have provided a nice table from Crash Course Psychiatry in the recording notes. It is worthwhile comparing and contrasting these two syndromes as there is many similarities but some key differences. So we have just sped through all of the key medications I think are important for third year. It is hard to remember all of them, that is for sure. And I would at first try and stick to learning one or two examples of each class and just trying to remember the important side effects for each. The toxidromes we just covered are often tested as well and they are important to know as well as safe prescribing for these drugs. So this includes things like checking thyroid function and renal function before giving lithium as well as checking white cell count on an ongoing basis for clozapine. This is all part of safe prescribing. Exam tip. And last year, one of our OSCE stations was to begin a patient on an antidepressant drug. For that station, we were asked to recommend an antidepressant drug for that patient and get informed consent. Informed consent includes educating the patient on expected side effects and benefits. As well as costs and expected outcomes. And not to forget alternatives. What I would avoid doing at first, unless you're already a pharmacist, would to remember every drug of each class, as well as trying to remember the specifics of all the antipsychotics and SSRIs and how each one differs in a minor way to each other. I would also avoid remembering doses for these medications at this stage. Review question. So we will finish off with a review question from psychiatry at a glance. Antipsychotics A are usually given as depot injections to increase adherence. B usually take four weeks to demonstrate an effect. C should be continued for 10 years after a severe psychotic episode. D, if atypical, are commonly associated with metabolic side effects. Hmm. So the way I would approach this question was that I'm pretty sure that most antipsychotic medications are given orally and depots are only given in cases in people that are not compliant with their drugs. So I don't think that they would be the usual medication. I'm not 100% sure how long it takes for antipsychotics to take effects, although four weeks seems a little bit too long. Similarly, 10 years seems like a little long to recommend, even after a severe episode, although I suppose it is common for many patients with severe psychosis to be on these medications for a long time. And if I was to remember back, there's two key classes within the antipsychotics are typicals and atypicals and I remember the typicals cause more extrapyramidal side effects so therefore atypicals must cause more metabolic side effects so the answer is D. That's correct very well done. And that's all we have time for I hope that you've found this recording useful and remember this is not the be all and end all to psychiatry and medications Rather, a quick overview which should help focus your own learning. Thank you.